time here, and, and we are so grateful for our time here. So grateful for the, the warm reception that we've gotten. We are very thankful for the opportunities we've had to visit with several of you uh, in meals together, and very thankful to uh, Buddy and Tony opening up their home, and, and it was a uh, just uh, just felt like home. And so that's what we like, is when we go places and meet new people, and then it's not very long before you feel like you've known each other for a long time. And so we were very appreciative of that. Uh, I certainly appreciate Bryant, and I appreciate the work he's doing here. And uh, I know you do too, I can tell that. And, and so I hope that that work continues and that you're able to help each other uh, continue to grow. I, I think that you have small groups like this, this have real opportunity. You got real opportunity to be very open with each other about the challenges, uh, about uh, you know what what lies ahead. The bigger the groups, the, the harder it gets for everybody to communicate. But you, you've got an opportunity there, and so I hope you take advantage of that and use that uh, uh, not as a uh, don't don't look at that as a, a hindrance, but actually an aid in doing the Lord's work in this place. And so we wish you well, and we'll certainly be praying for you and. We solicit your prayers for us uh, in the work that we're doing. In Genesis chapter 6, um, you have the beginning of the story of the flood, which is a, a story of tremendous destruction, obviously, and would be called up in remembrance of the destruction, the judgment that God brought on mankind. And so... It is maybe uh, unexpected that in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 is the first place that you find the word grace in the Bible. If you were to ask somebody, where, where do you think you would go to find grace? I don't think somebody would say, well, I would start with the flood. But that's where you start. And so in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, it says, Noah found favor, grace, some of your translations will say, in the eyes of the Lord. And so begins uh, the maybe maybe somewhat peculiar appearance of grace in the Old Testament. I think sometimes we find it in unexpected places, and we'll notice some of the unexpected places we find grace. One of the reasons that I think people might not think grace is found as often in the Old Testament is because it's not always translated grace. I think depending on your version... Uh, you're likely to only find it up to maybe 130 times in the Old Testament, which is still a significant amount, but it's not nearly as much as, uh, well, for instance, the New Testament, which is shorter, and you find it 160 times in your English translations. problem is you've got a lot of other words that are translated some of the time grace, but then sometimes some other word. So, for instance, in Genesis 6, 8, this word favor is translated grace at other times. We're going to see some other words that can be translated grace but aren't always. And if you add all those together, well, you got grace five or six hundred times in the Old Testament. So it's there quite a bit, but maybe one of the reasons we overlook it is because it's, it's just a different word that we're looking for. And maybe if we, we understood some of those words, it would help us understand that a little bit better. I want to start by just thinking about grace in the story of the flood and then I'd like to move forward in the Old Testament and see it in some other places and see what things we can learn about grace in those places. How is it that Noah found grace? Well, God told him a flood was coming. 
That doesn't sound like grace, does it? But it is. What if God hadn't told him? Then he'd be in the flood and not in the ark. God told him what to do to escape the flood. That's grace. He gave him a pattern for how to build an ark that would withstand the flood. That's grace. And he gave him all sorts of instructions not only to save himself but his family. And in fact, as we get to the New Testament, we find that Noah, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Gave him instructions to tell other people who wanted to escape. Apparently none did. That's grace. And so everything that God says and every instruction that God gives us uh, really can be pointed back to grace. And that's, that's the way Paul would define it, I think, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, that grace has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness. Right? It, it instructs us. That's the kind of grace Noah got. He got instruction. And that is grace. And I think about that in terms of, of the way people talk about grace today and the arguments they make about grace as if grace conflicts with work. As if grace conflicts with obedience. And so think about some of the, the arguments people make and see if, see if they apply to Noah or how they would look if they were applied to Noah. Noah, you don't need to build a boat because a flood is coming. You need to build the boat because God has shown you grace and you love Him. Don't, don't think about the flood. You just only think about how much you love God. Well, that one may not seem as ridiculous, but when you think about it, God said, do this. Why? Because the flood's coming. And so sometimes people preach grace as if it's, we should ignore all the warnings. Now, I'm all for saying, look, serve God because you love Him, because you trust Him and all those things. But one of the things that you do when you trust Him and you love Him is you, you take His warning seriously. And so some people might say, don't be obedient because you're afraid of hell. God says be obedient because you're afraid of hell. Right? He says you don't want to go there. So do this. And so he tells Noah, flood's coming. You don't want to be swept up in that. So build a boat. Somebody might say, Noah, you, you probably think this is about building a boat. As if that's the thing that's going to save you. When, it, when in reality, it's God that's going to save you. Well, that's right. God is going to save you. Th through the boat. It is the boat that's going to save you. You know, sometimes we get in those conversations about baptism. They say, you think baptism's going to save you. Well, I mean, that is what Peter says. It, baptism now saves you. And in fact, incidentally, it connects it right here to this boat. There's an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. And so, no, I think God is saving me through baptism. Just like God is saving Noah through the boat. Somebody might say, you know, no, really, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And every time you go out there and work so hard on building that boat, taking so much care to follow every instruction, you're showing that you don't really trust God. And so, in fact, the, the building of the boat shows you don't trust God who told you to build the boat. What, what insanity. I mean, it just doesn't even work in Noah's case, right? The only way to show he trusts God is to do what God says. Somebody might say, no, you probably think that if you stop building this boat, you'll die in the flood like everyone else. Then how can you say that you are saved? Can you really say that you're saved if, if in fact you stop building the boat, then you wouldn't be saved? This is one that's difficult for us sometimes because sometimes we say we're saved and somebody says you're saved if. Well, yes, 
Our salvation is conditional. We've talked about that some. It's conditional upon our faithfulness. But the thing is, what we, what we know is if we are faithful, we are guaranteed. You see, that's what Noah would point to. He goes, yes, but I'm not going to stop building the boat. I'm going to keep building it so I know I'll be saved. And so he could have confidence. How could he have confidence? Just keep doing what God says. And, and some people act as if doing what God says or not doing what God says is out of their control. It's not. God's put it in your control. Work out your own salvation. I'm here with you. I'm here to help you, to instruct you, to give you grace along the way. But, but it's, it's up to Noah to keep building the boat. Somebody might say, if you believe your salvation relies on your continuation of this work, then you are arrogant. Now, arrogance is thinking that you can figure out a, a way to be saved without listening to God. That's arrogance. It's humility to say, I don't know any other way. I, I, I can only listen to God. Now, let me just tell you, all these are phrases I've heard directed at people when it comes to our relationship to God today. And they don't apply in our relationship to God any more than they apply to Noah's relationship to God. He has a relationship, as you see, based on grace. And all of the challenges that people make about our relationship to God based on grace... Uh, they, they apply here, or when we apply them here, they just fall flat. And so they fall flat when applied to us as well. One more. If you really trusted in God, you would just sit back and let God build the boat. Well, then you'll, you'll die with everybody else. And that's what would happen. Well, that's the first instance of grace. Let's look through and let's notice some other instances of grace. Turn over to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus 34, and in verse 6, so this is, this is at the, um, the sort of conclusion of these three chapters, 32, 33, and 34, where in 32 they build the, the golden calf and, uh, and fall down and worship it. God uh, is angry with them. Moses come da comes down, destroys the tablets, and then uh, punishes the people, and then the sons of Levi strike down many of the people, and then we begin to have some reconciliation in 33 and especially in 34. And in the midst of that, or in the aftermath of that, as, uh, as Moses is still pleading for the people, recall we, we mentioned uh, yesterday how that uh, God had said to the people yesterday morning, God said to, to Moses, you go on and you go on without me because if I go in their midst, I'll, I'll destroy them. And Moses pleads for the people. Here in verse 6, it says, uh, the Lord, this is what Moses had required that, that he would be able to see God. And it says, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, what you have here are four words or groups of words that all are translated at grace in various, translated into the English word grace in various places of the Old Testament. So the word compassionate, of course gracious there. The word slow to anger, that group of words, slow to anger, sometimes uh, translated grace, and abounding in loving kindness. Those four words are grouped together in several places throughout the Old Testament. Lots of times in the Psalms. And 
it's it's sort of like Yahweh. It's an identifier of God. Right? We put all four of those words together. And this would be repeated over and over. God is these things. And so what God, it's, it's sort of like saying God is grace. I mean, he's defined by grace. Like every aspect of grace defines who God is. Now, what I'd like to do is notice a few of those places where those words are grouped together and, and uh, what we can learn about, about when it's used and how it's used and the context in which it's used. So here's the first place where all four of those words appear together is Exodus 34. So what do we learn here? All right. Israel has just made a covenant with God. If you go back to chapter 24, you see the blood of the covenant. It's sprinkled on the people. It's sprinkled on the law. And so they, in, they enter into a covenant and they make proclamations. We will do whatever the Lord says. We will follow all of His commandments. We will not turn away from it. And all of those things uh, are solidified uh, with the blood that is sprinkled on them. That would be referenced in the New Testament. Of course, we're under the blood of the covenant and the blood is Jesus Christ instead of the blood of bulls and goats. So they enter into that covenant, and Moses, um, back in chapter 19, we see that they had approached Mount Sinai. We see God descend on the mountain, and Moses is still receiving the law at the point that they enter into that covenant. It's not done. The ink's not dry, we might say. And, and Moses is still receiving that covenant. And the people kind of keep their distance from the mountain because, because they are afraid. And they tell Moses, you, you listen to what God has to say. We're, we're, we, we would die if we go up there. And they're, they're right, because God said they would if they touched the mountain. And so Moses is still receiving that law when God says, go down and, and look at the people and uh, look at what they're doing. And he says he's going to destroy them. So Moses goes down there. Now consider what's happening. They've entered into a covenant, and before the, before the law is even fully given, they've broken it. Not only have they broken it, they literally broke the first rule. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments as they're being laid out, which are sort of the foundations of the law, thou shalt have no other God before me. Make no graven image. And, and so what did they do? They, they didn't just break the law. They started right at the beginning breaking the law. And so they are lawbreakers. That's what they are. That's what... That's, that's what the point James is making when he says, you know, if you're guilty of one point of the law. Well, they're guilty of one point of the law. They're guilty of the point of the law. Right? I have no other gods before me. I come first. So, what do you do? Well, what God says is the whole nation is worthy of death. Right? That's, that's the appropriate response. Wipe them all out. Moses pleads for the people. God relents. And so God can truly say when he describes himself to Moses, I am compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. How do we know? Because I didn't kill you all right there. Could have. Should have. But I didn't do it. You broke the law. Which law? The law. The very first rule I gave, you broke it. Can I suggest to you one more thing about that? A lot of times when we, when we enter into agreements with people and they break an agreement or they in some way insult us or, or hurt us 
and then they come and they apologize. One of our very quick responses very often is to say, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't think a thing of it. How many times have you said that to people? It's no big deal. And sometimes it really isn't. It really isn't a big deal. But sometimes it is, and we don't know what else to say but to just try to make light of it. And to brush it aside and show some grace and show some compassion because uh, the only thing we know how to do is minimize it so that we can show that. God does not minimize it in order to show compassion. No, He says what you did is worthy of death. That's why He can say He is compassionate and gracious. You see, if it's no big deal, then He's not that gracious and not that compassionate. You, you know, holding them accountable would be irresponsible. It, it would be uh, unjust for God. And so He doesn't say, don't worry about it. You really didn't do anything that bad. No, He says, no, you did something wor- worthy of national destruction. And it didn't destroy you. And so... God is gracious and compassionate. He's gracious and compassionate at the very beginning of His covenant with His people. And so, uh, and so He defines Himself as that. And He would continue to f- define Himself as that as the existence of this people goes on and on. Well, look over at Joel. Well, I tell you what, let's, let's look at Joel last. Let's look over at the book of Jonah next. And so, in in Jonah is another place where we see these four words uh, put together. And of course, you know the story of Jonah, where he is told to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah is a prophet at the time uh, in the northern kingdom of Jeroboam II, which would have been a prosperous time in the northern kingdom. And he's sent to to prophesy to Assyria, which would have been one of the most... uh, hated nations in the world because they were a brutal people. Eventually they're going to bring that brutality down to Israel and they're going to suffer by that brutality. But at this point they're not the world power that they would become and so Jonah sort of looks down on them not only because of their brutality and because of their sinfulness but also because uh, they just they're not prominent. And Israel is. And can I suggest to you that what Jonah represents is Israel? I mean, why is that story there even for us? It's peculiar in the prophets. Jonah is the most uh, is is the least honorable of the prophets, and he's the only preacher I know who's upset that people listens to him. And so he he goes and finally, of course, gets to Nineveh, and he does preach there in chapter three. And his message is very brief, uh, perhaps you recall. He comes in and he walks into the city, and it's a great city. And uh, he, he comes in through one day's walk and he cries out and says, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Talk about a brief sermon. That's, that's as brief as it gets. Destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. That's what he preaches. Then, then he goes up onto the hill to see what's going to happen. He says, uh, it says in chapter 4 and verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew 
that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So we have an additional phrase there. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better uh, to me than life. So why, why is Jonah upset? Well, he's upset because God is gracious. Now think about that. Here's a prophet in a time in Israel's history when they are... It, Israel is certainly not righteous. The northern kingdom especially is not righteous. And yet Jonah, as a man of God, still knows and still is confident of God's grace. And his confidence in God's grace is what makes him not want to go preach to Nineveh. But notice something else. He, what is he told to go preach to Nineveh? Go tell Nineveh that destruction is coming. And Jonah says... I wish you had not made me do that. He runs in the other direction, the, the completely opposite direction, in order to avoid preaching judgment to the people, not for the reasons we wouldn't want to preach judgment. We don't want to preach judgment because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We don't want to preach judgment because we're afraid people are going to be mad at us. Jonah didn't want to preach judgment because he was afraid preaching judgment would bring grace to those people. You talk, you talk about the preaching of grace. Telling people about hell is gracious. What, what better thing can you do than to tell people a danger that lies in front of them? And what Jonah says is, I knew, I knew if I told them about the judgment, they would repent, and if they repented, I knew you would accept it. Oh, the nerve. Jonah, like so many other Israelites, felt like nobody deserved God's grace but them. You see, this is a good picture of the Pharisees in the New Testament. They didn't want to preach to the world. I'll tell you what it also is. It's a, a clear indication that God has always wanted relationship with all people. Not just a select. Even when it was the nation of Israel, God was spreading out and wanting other people to listen besides just Israel. And so it was not a new thing when we get to the New Testament and all of a sudden God is interested in the Gentiles. He's always been interested in the Gentiles. But the key element that I want us to understand is the relationship between the proclamation of God's judgment and grace. Jonah got it. Got it backwards in some ways, but he understood it. He understood it, and we should too. Well, then turn over to uh, the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2. So, the book of Joel is, is a proclamation of judgment against Israel, uh, in fact, like most of the prophets are. Um, it, he is more, a more, much more traditional prophet uh, than Jonah would be. I think Jonah is, is sort of a tale as a warning to Israel. Um, and whereas Joel is a message from Joel to Israel. And in general, Joel's message is this. You have just experienced a terrible tragedy of locusts coming in and taking everything that is nothing compared to what is coming if you don't repent. It's basically Joel's message. And so in order to get them to repent, in verse 12, he says this, Yet even now, which is language that we see, not just here, but like um, Jeremiah would use very similar language, 
even now. In other words, I'm telling you all this bad stuff, but there's hope. There's still hope. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. What, what Joel is doing here is he is pressing on the known qualities of God. What he's saying is, return to God. Why? Because you know what kind of God he is. Because you, know you know the truth that even now, if you would turn your, your backs to your current behavior and return to Him with fasting and weeping and mourning, and if you'd rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, an inward, an inward transformation and not just an outward transformation. Then you know He would take you back. Because He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And so God is all those things. And He's, he's saying that from the standpoint of, of, of people you know, communicating to people who would know that. Um, it's not giving them new information. It's reminding them of what they already know. Um, and, and I think sometimes Israel certainly would forget that. In Malachi, in Malachi there is a call for return and, uh, and the answer from the people that's supplied by Malachi is, how shall we return? And I think people will do that sometimes. They'll act like they don't know that God is these things, but if they'll think about it, they know He really is. It's like people who talk about their parents sometimes. And say, my dad, my dad doesn't doesn't care about me at all. My dad hates me. And maybe I maybe I had that conversation with my mother at some point, and she might say, Steve, what what do you know about that? No, he doesn't hate me. No, he loves me. No, he cares for me. I know he's doing this because he wants what's best for him. You know, you have those conversations. I feel that's kind of what Joel is doing here. You know who God is. You know he's gracious. You know he's compassionate. So we get to the New Testament and people think that God's grace is just, is sort of a quality that's just cropped up all of a sudden. It's not. It's not. No, it's a quality that's been there the whole time. And just like every other aspect, it's a quality that hasn't changed. Right? God... It's not even that he's become more gracious. That's not true. He's just as gracious as he always has been. That's what, that's what um, Paul draws on if you look over there in Romans chapter 4. He draws on the grace that has already been witnessed throughout the Old Testament and the means by which we draw on that grace. And so he starts in, What shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What, is this, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as, as righteousness. So, Abraham. Abraham found righteousness, found was credited with righteousness through faith, as favor 
not as what is due, according to verse 4, as grace, not as what's due. And, and then comes down to verse 9, and he reiterates that point. When was that said to him? How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? In other words, let's go all the way back before the law. Was God gracious then? Yes. How was God gracious then? And the Jews might say, well, through circumcision. No, no, no. Because this passage, this is Genesis 15. Circumcision is Genesis 17. So he says, when, when did God say that? We well, said it in Genesis 15. Well, when did circumcision come? Well, that's Genesis 17. So it's not circumcision that brought grace or brought righteousness. It's the faith and therefore the grace in response to that faith that brings about the crediting as righteousness. But he goes further than just using Abraham. He says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man whom, God's credits, whom God credits righteousness apart from works. But David was under the law. All right, so I get Abraham. He came before the law. But what about David who lived during the time of the law? How did he find grace? He says he found it the same way. Just as David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Well, in the case of David, you might say, yes, but, but his grace is the, law, the law's grace, which is not the same as our grace. I think the point of, of Paul is that it is the same as our grace. Because when David sinned, he sinned with adultery. Now, what did the law say about adultery? What's the, what's the sacrifice for adultery? I'm just challenging you. Go read the law and see if you can find a sacrifice for adultery. There's only one, and it's you. It's stoning. God doesn't say, here's what you do if you commit adultery. What you do if you commit adultery, you drag both of them out there and you stone them. That's it. So how does David survive that? not through the law he can't appeal to the law in fact in his confession in Psalm 51 he says I would offer sacrifices if, that's, if that would do the trick I would do that there are no sacrifices so what must he do he must appeal to God in faith he must put his trust in who God is and go back to Psalm 51 and notice what he says about God there in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's one of our words. According to the greatness of your compassion. That's one of our words. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. And he goes on and he sprinkles those words of grace and mercy and compassion throughout his appeal to God. He said, I know that you are who you said you were in Exodus 32 and I'm going to appeal to what you said you are. And so he's able to come to God with faith and a contrite heart and not find grace through the law but through faith in who God has said He is. And so what's Paul's point? Paul's point is people have had a relationship with God on the same basis all along. Come to God. They trust God. 
They trust God is who He says He is. They do everything that God asks them to do. And then they can have confidence in their relationship with God. And certainly, if He asks them to be circumcised, then they're circumcised. But, if He hasn't asked them to be circumcised, and that's His point to these people, that God hasn't asked the Gentiles to be circumcised, in fact, He's not even asking the Jews to be circumcised anymore, then then we don't be circumcised. But we are baptized, which He gets to over in chapter 6. The point is that we access God's grace by the same means from beginning to end of, of His Word. And He's been telling us the same thing about Himself from beginning to end. That's why Jesus, when He's asked about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, can say, what does it say from the beginning? Because God's not different. God is not changeable. And I know you might say, well, I mean, you might, you might almost like the Jews say, well, what about under the law of Abraham? Jesus gives an explanation. That was because you people. It's not what God wanted. If you want to know what God wants, go back to what He says when He defined marriage. If you want to know what God thinks about grace, just look. He defines it over and over and over. So when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament is not saying, here, let me teach you a new concept. No, it's let me teach you a deeper knowledge of a concept that God's already introduced. Because the only question left to ask is, How can God be just and be so gracious? And that's where we come to the cross. Really, that's that's the only answer. I mean, it's the only question. And, And Paul talks about that. In the cross, he brings mercy and justice together. Because people might look at David and say, How could he let David off the hook? Jesus. Understand that. Noah gets saved from the flood, but he doesn't get saved from his sins without Jesus. David gets saved from stoning, but he doesn't get saved from his sins without Jesus. And so the only thing that the New Testament brings to the table is the how can all of this fit together. And, and of course, obviously, a covenant shift. And the, the rules change, but, but the foundations are the same. And the foundations are that, that we, we trust God. And we trust that He is forgiving, that He doesn't want to to bring judgment on us, that He doesn't want to destroy His people, but that He wants all men to be saved. He's been telling that story from the very get-go. I hope that you understand that this evening. Sometimes people will say about somebody who's maybe disobedient or something like that, they'll say, maybe God will let him in. You know, who knows? Maybe God will will open the gate for him. God will open the gate for everybody he can open the gate for. And he wants to open the gate for everybody. But I think it's striking. It's not as if God's going to be sitting there on judgment day, you know, waffling and going, ah, okay. No, he wants everybody in. And if he could just let you in, and in fact, if he could do that, just make the decision, then why did Jesus go to the cross? That's how gracious God is. He wants you so bad that He's willing to shed His own blood for that. And so, He wants you there. And what that means is you can know that if you're not, 
it'll be your decision, not his. Because if it's his decision, you're in. But he leaves the yes or no up to you. And so, would you appeal to him in faith this evening? Would you appeal to him in obedience? And just as he told Noah to build the ark, he's told you to be buried in baptism, to put on Christ. Are you going to listen to the fools in the world who would tell you that not obeying God is somehow loyalty or faithfulness? What an absurdity. If there's any way that you need to reconcile to God this evening, won't you do so to that gracious God who would receive you while we stand and while we sing?